Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So pretty recently, uh, we got a complaint that we talk about too many women. And we've gotten that complaint quite a few times. So I did what we always do, and I, I counted, but this time I had a bee in my bonnet, so I made a bunch of pie charts. <laughs> and, I mean, the pie charts sh- show that there's never, ever been a year in the history of our time on the show when we've talked about more women than men. Uh, in spite of concerted effort to talk about a lot of women. Um, and in response to this whole thing of, of, of all the pie charts, a lot of folks suggested that we only talk about women for the rest of the year. Which I get. <laughs> I get that impulse. Uh, I was already in the middle of working on these two episodes when that whole thing happened. And that's actually a really good example of why women are not the only people that we try to make sure that we talk about on this show. Uh, because we're going to talk about Bayard Rustin today and Wednesday. Bayard Rustin was an openly gay black man born in 1912, and he spent his life working tirelessly for equal rights and peace and democracy and economic equality including being one of the primary planners of the 1963 March on Washington. And because of when he lived, Rustin's sexual orientation became a really serious obstacle to the work that he was trying to do. So we're going to talk about him, as I said a moment ago, in two parts. This part will go up to the late 1940s, and then part two will pick up from there. And a little heads up for parents and teachers. Uh, by necessity, we talk about Bayard Rustin's sex life more in this podcast than you might normally expect from our show. There are also several incidents we're going to talk about in which he and the people around him were the subject of violence. So this might be one to pre-screen before sharing it with the kids or or if either of those things are things that you are sensitive to. So we're going to hop right in. Uh, typically, when we talk about the biography of a historical figure, we start at the beginning with their birth and then we walk through what's known of their early life. And while we're going to get to that, we're going to take a, a slightly different approach to introducing Bayard Rustin. Rustin was a member of the Religious Society of Friends, or Quakers. In his own words, quote, My activism did not spring from being black. Rather, it is rooted fundamentally in my Quaker upbringing and the values instilled in me by the grandparents who reared me. So before we talk about what he did, we're going to talk about who he was and how that grew from his Quaker religion. As in the case with pretty much every denomination, there's not one monolithic way of being a Quaker. There are lots of variations and nuances from region to region and from one congregation to another. And this even trickles down to whether a person prefers the word Quaker or the word friends to describe themselves. Since Bayard Rustin referred to himself as a Quaker, we will as well. A core of Quaker teachings are values known as testimonies. There's also some variation in how the testimonies are defined or explained and how people interpret them and incorporate them into their lives day to day. As described by the American Friends Service Committee, the six Quaker testimonies are peace, equality, community, integrity, simplicity and stewardship. In particular, Rustin spent his life trying to embody peace, equality and community. Throughout his life, Rustin resisted and worked against oppression, inequality, and war, and he did it all through nonviolent means. He believed that all human beings are part of the same community and that a central trait of that global family was that every person in it was fundamentally equal. 
This belief informed his approach to social movements that he actively participated in, in the United States, in India, and in several African nations. Although a lot of the work he's best known for was with the civil rights movement, Rustin also joined the gay rights movement as it became more public in the 1970s and 1980s. He worked with refugees, observed elections, and traveled to Africa repeatedly, both to work with local independence movements and to protest nuclear weapons testing being conducted there. He went to prison for his nonviolent opposition to World War II. All of these efforts united the themes of nonviolence, equality, and a community of equals encompassing all of humanity. There are several books and articles that tie Rustin's integrity, another of the Quaker testimonies, to the fact that he was an openly gay man in an era when same-sex behavior was illegal and when being gay carried an enormous stigma. But that's really only part of the story. It's true that he never really hid his orientation from people. When he was young, he told his grandmother that he preferred to spend his time with men, and her reply was, quote, I suppose that's what you need to do. The people he worked with in the pacifist and civil rights movements in the 40s and 50s all knew that he was gay. This was long before the Stonewall riots brought the gay rights movement into a more mainstream eye. At the same time, he struggled with his orientation and how best to ethically exist in a culture that so clearly classified his attraction to men as wrong. It's far from universal, but a lot of written accounts of gay men who grew up in the U.S. when he did talk about this sense of shame, guilt, and secrecy. In terms of his sexual orientation, Rustin never seemed to have that, and being unashamed of who he was was something his partners and the people around him noticed and commented on. However, there were definitely occasions when his sex life had a huge negative consequence to his life and work, and sometimes this frankly boiled down to poor decisions on his part. He spent a lot of time wrestling with his sexual orientation and how to make it compatible with what he saw as his life's work when most of the world saw it as immoral. So the idea that his simply being out or as out as a person could be in that part of history uh, was a mark of his integrity is really oversimplified. Uh, I also want to take a moment to say we're not suggesting that people who were not out did not have integrity because life is more complicated than that. Yes, indeed. Uh, I mean, we've, we've talked about it many times on this show. The, the period of time in which it was not only marginalized and looked down upon, but flat out illegal to be gay. And he was not a perfect person. And there are things we will discuss in these two episodes that seem contrary to the Quaker teachings that drove Bayard's activism. But even so, being a Quaker was critically important to his work, and Quaker philosophies of nonviolence and peacebuilding were concepts that he returned to again and again. Although Quaker teachings had a profound impact on so many aspects of Bayard Rustin's life and character, we'd really be remiss if we didn't also talk about the, Im- the influence of the African Methodist Episcopal Church as well. His grandfather was a member of the AME Church, and his grandmother eventually joined it as well, essentially to keep the family peace. It was causing some tension between them for her to be a Quaker and him to be in the AME Church. So he was exposed to both religions and their traditions in his childhood. Although the Society of Friends had been a big part of the movement for abolition in the United States, and many had been active participants in the Underground Railroad, many Quaker congregations were still predominantly white. During Rustin's formative years, those that had black members often segregated them into separate seating. 
The African Methodist Episcopal Church, on the other hand, had been founded in 1816 as a response to segregation in other Methodist churches. As a consequence, the AME Church became a strong advocate for black leadership and stressed the need for black people to take collective action to oppose racism and injustice, both from the pulpit and in life. So, in his life and his work, Bayard Rustin really combined the principles of Quaker teachings with the advocacy focus of the AME, along with other philosophies and belief systems as well. Uh, more of those will reveal themselves as we talk about his life, which we are going to start after a brief word from a sponsor. So to get back to our story, Bayard Taylor Rustin was born on March, March 17th, 1912 in Westchester, Pennsylvania. The town of Westchester, which is not far from Philadelphia, was established by Quakers in 1799. It continued to have a predominantly Quaker population, and its black population grew as well, in part because of its white Quaker community sheltering escaping slaves. Rustin's mother, Florence, was 16 when he was born, and his father, a man named Archie Hopkins, was not in the picture. He was raised by his grandparents, Jennifer and Julia Rustin, and Florence was the eldest of their eight children. During his earliest childhood years, the young Bayard thought his mother was actually his sister. The Rustins were one of Westchester's most respected black families. Jennifer was a steward at the Elks Lodge, and one of its members rented him a ten-room home that allowed their large family to live pretty comfortably. Julia's father was a pastor at one of Westchester's largest churches. Julia herself did extensive community work. She was one of the area's first members of the NAACP. If you do not know what that is, that is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People after it was founded in 1909. Some of the nation's most prominent black leaders were guests in the Rustin home, including W.E.B. Du Bois. Julia also did lots of organizing and what might almost be considered social work in her community. Things like founding a nursery for the children of black working families. During the Great Migration, as huge numbers of African Americans started moving north, she also used their home to house black newcomers to the area who had nowhere else to go. Bayard's elementary education took place at a segregated Westchester school. The local high school, though, was integrated, mainly because the community itself wasn't large enough to support a separate high school for black children. He was a really good student, and he pursued a wide range of extracurricular activities. He won essay contests and oratory awards. He was also a poet and a singer with a beautiful, very clear tenor singing voice. There are still some recordings that exist today of him and his adult life singing spirituals and protest songs. And Rustin was also an athlete. He lettered in track and football, and his teammates told stories about his sportsmanship, how he helped people up and sometimes recited poems to them after he had tackled them. So although Westchester had long Quaker roots and Quakers played a big role in the abolition of slavery, there was still a lot of racial division in the town. In addition to segregated schools, theaters, and other public spaces, there was a lot of racial tension among families in the town and tensions among its various European immigrant groups. The prejudice ran deep enough that young Byard was not allowed in the home of his best friend, John Cessna. And he also worried that Cessna's parents would be angry if he brought John over to his house. They wound up having their hangout time in the local public library. 
There are lots of stories from Rustin's high school years about his first protest for equal rights. And since most of this knowledge comes from interviews conducted later, it's difficult to pin down with precision. There are stories about him being arrested for sitting in the white section of a local theater and for refusing to move after being denied entry into a restaurant while on a trip with the football team. He protested the segregated locker facilities at the integrated high school, and he succeeded in changing that policy when he got the team to threaten to refuse to play an upcoming championship. Regardless of exact details, it's clear that he was already focused on fighting for equality while he was still in school. Once he graduated, though, things became a lot more difficult for him. He had truly excelled in high school, but he wasn't able to get a scholarship to attend college. His family could afford, at most, uh, to pay his way somewhere local to Westchester. Eventually, through personal connections, he finally wound up with a music scholarship to Wilberforce University, a historically black university in Ohio. But Wilberforce University wasn't really a good fit. A lot of its offered courses at the time were more technically and vocationally oriented than the more liberal arts curriculum that Rustin really wanted. ROTC participation was mandatory, which directly conflicted with his pacifism. This experience was one of the things that would lead Rustin to formally become a Quaker. Accounts differ on how this actually played out. Either he was asked to leave the school because he arranged a strike over the quality of the food, or he left because the school just wasn't challenging him. Back home in Westchester, Rustin enrolled at Cheney State Teachers College, another historically black college. This one was founded by Quakers for Black Students, and it was certainly a better fit for Rustin, but he wound up leaving the area entirely to go to New York City at the invitation of his Aunt Bessie. Although he originally intended to study at City College, this more or less spelled the end of his formal education. And we'll start talking about what he did beyond college after another brief word from a sponsor. So to get back to Bayard Rustin's life, uh, although he did not wind up graduating from City College as originally planned, he did become involved with more organized protests and resistance soon after getting to New York. For a time, he was a member of the Youth Communist League. When he joined, it was not long after the Scottsboro Boys trial. Uh, these were nine black teenagers who were falsely accused of raping two white women. All the boys were convicted, and all but the youngest was sentenced to death. The Communist Party led demonstrations and raised money for the young men's legal defense. All of these things, plus the party's focus on equal economic opportunity, were really attractive to Rustin. However, when Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, the organization dropped its focus on racial equality in the United States, in part due to concerns that protesting against segregation of the United States military would ultimately weaken its efforts to aid the Soviet Union. The Youth Communist League also specifically told Rustin to stop his activism against racism. He wound up cutting his ties to the organization and to the Communist Party completely. He didn't stop with his activism, though. He registered as a conscientious objector. He began working with socialist labor leader A. Philip Randolph. He also met pacifist A.J. Musty at an American Friends Services Committee meeting and eventually began working with his pacifist social movement organization, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, as a field secretary. 
Through the Fellowship of Reconciliation and other organizations, Rustin started organizing anti-war and civil rights protests, including traveling to Puerto Rico to study the struggles of conscientious objectors living there. Often, he was the only black person in an other, otherwise all-white team from the Fellowship of Reconciliation. He toured the United States, making anti-war speeches and organizing. And in his speeches, he often presented anti-war act- activism and equal rights for black people as inextricably linked. It made no sense, according to his philosophy, for a black person to join a segregated military and then fight injustice on behalf of a nation that would not grant him equal rights back at home. In 1942, Rustin boarded a bus from Louisville to Nashville and took a seat in the second row that was in the white section. The bus driver told him to move to the back and also called him a racial epithet in the process. Rustin refused, saying that segregation was unjust and explained that in his words, quote, if I were to sit in the back, I would be condoning injustice. For the rest of the journey, at every stop, the driver tried to get Rustin to move, and Rustin refused. Then, outside of Nashville, police pulled the bus over, and four officers physically removed Rustin and then beat him in front of the other passengers. In later interviews, he said that when they were done, he stood up and said, There is no need to beat me. I am not resisting you. Through all these tours and speaking, his view on the war and the draft evolved. It wasn't just that war was wrong. In his mind, conscription itself was also wrong because it was dividing the whole of mankind, which was supposed to be one community of equals, into us and them. He also objected to the fact that a person had to be a member of a pacifist religion to become a conscientious objector. Non-religious pacifists were excluded. His experiences in civilian public service camps where objectors were sent to also left a lot to be desired. The camps themselves, like so many other places, were segregated. So when the draft board ordered Rustin to appear for a physical and report to a civilian public service camp on November 13th, 1943, he refused. He rescinded his prior request to be granted conscientious objector status, and he was imprisoned at Ashland Federal Correctional Institution in Kentucky beginning in 1944. Once he got there, he tried to integrate the prison, continually advocating integration to the warden. Eventually, he was allowed to teach a history class to white inmates, and the warden had the gate that separated the racial sections of the prison unlocked. When Rustin used this gate to enter the common area for white prisoners, though, another inmate, a former judge convicted on fraud charges, beat him with a mop handle until it broke. Rustin's wrist was broken in the attack, and several white conscientious objectors who were nearby sustained minor injuries. Rustin, not his attacker, was punished for it. I kind of want to take a moment to say from this point, people tried to brand Bayard Rustin as a draft dodger. Uh, that's not what draft dodger means. Like, a draft dodger is a person who evades the draft by, for example, going to Canada. That is not what Bayard Rustin did. Bayard Rustin refused the draft and served prison time as a consequence. Rustin's attempts to integrate the prison uh, were derailed, unfortunately, by a sexual misconduct investigation. This was an allegation that Rustin originally denied, but then he later acknowledged it is true. He was also put into isolation for weeks, and some of the other conscientious objectors who came to his defense were put put into administrative segregation. 
This incident caused a huge rift between Rustin and A.J. Musty, who wrote him a scathing letter blasting him for weakness for making such a decision in the middle of efforts to integrate the prison. He was deeply disappointed that Bayard had not only jeopardized his work in the prison by engaging in sexual activities with other inmates, but also that he had lied about it. After a long series of meetings and interrogations, Rustin was let out of isolation, where he resumed ag- advocacy for integration at the prison. After another series of protests and an influx of new conscientious objectors to the prison that made Rustin's advocacy seem like more of a threat, he was transferred to Lewisburg Penitentiary in uh, in Pennsylvania. He was released in 1947 after 28 total months incarcerated. Throughout his time in prison, Rustin kept up a correspondence with Davis Platt, his first long-term partner. Rustin and Platt had met in 1943, and if anybody in the peace movement had entertained doubts about Rustin's sexual orientation, his relationship with Platt really dispelled them. Because prison correspondence was monitored, they wrote their letters in code. These letters progressed in their coded intimacy, especially after Rustin confessed to his infidelity there, and he vowed to be celibate for the rest of his time in prison. The two uh, would eventually break up in 1947 at Platt's instigation because he wanted their relationship to be monogamous, and uh, Rustin had a lot of partners. After he got out of prison, Rustin was part of the Journey of Reconciliation, which was a project of the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. This was a precursor to the Freedom Rides. And if you're interested in learning about the Freedom Rides, there's a whole series of podcasts by past hosts on those in the archive. The Journey of Reconciliation was meant to test segregation laws after the 1946 Supreme Court ruling Morgan versus Virginia, which ruled that segregation was illegal for buses that crossed state lines. Even though the Supreme Court had ruled that segregating interstate buses was unconstitutional, a lot of bus lines were either tacitly or explicitly segregating them anyway. And a lot of riders, either not aware of the ruling, not wanting to cause trouble, or being genuinely fearful for their safety, complied. The journey of reconciliation was intended to put bus integration to the test by sending both black and white riders out together on buses to test the law. This was dangerous work, and Rustin and the other riders faced continual opposition, including violence and multiple arrests as they traveled through the South. They were attacked and beaten by a mob of segregationists in North Carolina, and it was Rustin, not the attackers, who was charged. He wound up returning to North Carolina two years later after a lengthy series of appeals and a botched defense to serve 30 days of hard labor on a chain gang. He was released after 22 days, after which he spoke on the experience, as well as publishing a lengthy report on the inhumane and abhorrent treatment of the prisoners on the chain gang. This report eventually led to some reforms, both in North Carolina and in some of the surrounding states. In the interim between the journey of reconciliation and his return to North Carolina to serve his sentence, Rustin did a lot He testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee on the need to integrate the armed forces, something that finally happened on July 26, 1948, with Executive Order 9981. There is is film footage. I think it is of this, this testimony. It may be a different one where, like, he keeps answering the question, And then he takes a drag on a cigarette like he's dropping a microphone. It's amazing. (laughs) 
Don't smoke. Also it's- in 19. 19- <laughs> Don't smoke. That's it's real bad for you. <laughs> this was in 1948 when people didn't really know that. Yeah. Uh, also in 1948, the American Friends Service Committee assigned Rustin to be its representative at a pacifist seminar in India. He had been studying the pacifist teachings of Mohandas Gandhi, also known as Mahatma Gandhi, for some time, especially how those teachings could be applied to a nonviolent resistant movement. This turned into a four-month tour of study and advocacy in India following a brief stay in London. Although Gandhi had been assassinated that January, Rustin was able to study with people who had worked directly with him. He also spent a lot of time speaking directly to India's own civil rights leaders. Gandhi had been the keystone of its nonviolent focus. And after his assassination, movement leaders were worried that younger, more radical participants would take the movement in a more violent direction. They really hoped that Rustin, as a black man, would have an influence and reach that white pacifists simply couldn't, considering that India had just become independent from a white British government. After his return from India, Rustin wrote, quote, We need in every community a group of angelic troublemakers. The only weapon we have is our bodies, and we need to tuck them in places so wheels don't turn. Which is where I got the title of this episode. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually where where Tracy has cliffhung us. Yeah. Well, I originally where we're going to pick up next time is the probably lowest point in Rustin's life. And I originally intended to get through that in this episode. But the, the time does not equate. <laughs> that's a whole additional chapter of story. We would there, have one so. really long episode and one really short one. Well, yeah, so we're going to we're going to end at kind of a high point. Like at this point in Rustin's career, people were calling him the American Gandhi and they they like he was on track to become an enormously prominent and and well-known civil rights pacifist leader. Like he was he was on that path. And we're going to pick up next time with what derailed him from that path. Uh, Just kind of a sad story. So brace for that. But in the meantime, you got some listener mail? I do have listener mail. Bring it on. Uh, this listener mail is, uh, is, is a little bit, a little bit from back. I'm still catching up from having been out for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> with my mail. Um, and so this is from Mary or pa- possibly Mary Ellen. Um, that's not quite clear. So uh, she writes to us about white weddings and she says, hello, Tracy and Holly. I just listened to the episode on white weddings and you stated that you didn't know whether plum cake was still considered to be a wedding cake in the UK. I'm sure loads of British listeners have written in to tell you this, but fruitcake is definitely still the traditional option when you're looking to get a wedding cake here. Most people in my husband's generation don't fancy it, but his parents and older relatives all still say that used to be the standard wedding confection. We even tried some when tasting for wedding cakes, but we opted for something a bit less heavy. I'm an American who met a British guy while living in Japan. Having moved to England and done wedding planning here, I've learned lots of surprising things, like the difference in traditions like the cake. For example, it's common for the reception to have two different meals. First is the wedding breakfast, which, despite the name, is just the sit-down served meal after the wedding ceremony. This is served to a smaller group of people, as when the evening guests arrive later, there is usually a buffet-style meal. 
Also, I was prepared to have the best man and maid of honor give the toast, but I found out the traditional way here these days is to have the father of the bride, the groom, and lastly, the best man give speeches. I was learning a lot of little differences like that, which surprised me as I thought American and British weddings would be quite similar. Finally, just as a side note, I thought you'd appreciate being fans of Queen Victoria. When my husband and I got married at the City Hall here in the northeast of England, the ceremony room where weddings were held was named, quote, the Victoria Room. Throughout the ceremony, we were under the stern gaze of Victoria's portrait. We went back in after to snap a photo with Her Majesty as well. She sent us that photo. Thank you so much, Mary, or perhaps Mary Ellen. That is a sweet story. It is. Their photo is very sweet. And I love the idea of <laughs> Queen Victoria because in my head, I think about her letters to her daughter saying, don't have kids right away. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, um, we heard, so it was funny because after that episode, most, but not all of the notes that we got about wedding cake in Britain were from similarly, uh, Americans who married someone, um, either uh, like somebody who had moved to the United States and their parents were still somewhere in the UK or like someone who had moved somebody moved someone who had met someone from the UK and was like go, going there to get married. We basically heard a lot of American perspectives about what it was like to try to plan a wedding uh-huh. uh, in somewhere in like the whole realm of the British Isles Um having grown up with the expectations that are kind of ingrained in you in the United States and sort of being like, what do you mean this fruitcake situation? I don't, this is not a cake. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And some of these letters were quite charming. So thank you very much, everyone who sent them to us. Yes. Uh, If you would like to write to us, we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. We're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history and on Instagram at history. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our website. Put the word Gandhi in the search bar. You will find several articles about Gandhi, uh, his life and work. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find, for example, the pie charts I talked about at the beginning of this episode. You'll find an archive of every episode we have ever done. You will find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have ever done, which uh, I will link to some of the recordings of Bayard Rustin and singing. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 